Our scripture reading is going to be Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. It's a passage that we actually used as our main text a couple of weeks ago, but it's appropriate to return to it for this particular message this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, reading from the English Standard Version translation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, grant us that necessary, needful supply of your Holy Spirit even now in our hearing the word, in our hearts needing illumination by your Spirit to understand your word, and then to faithfully apply it and practice it in our lives. Father, we would pray that uh, the message, uh, which in preparing it I've attempted to be faithful to the Scriptures, would be such, Lord, that you would work in such a way that everything that might be deficient would be easily forgotten, that everything that is faithful and true to your Word would strike our hearts with the deepest conviction that we might be moved by your word to bring all honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This particular Sunday is customarily referred to within those churches that self-consciously see themselves in the Reformation heritage as Reformation Sunday, since it's the closest Sunday through the 31st of October. Some 500 years ago, on the 31st of October, which was All Saints Eve, November 1st being All Saints Day, which, by the way, is where you get the term Hallowed Eve, October 31st, which then became Halloween, a pagan celebration, which was not the intention of the Roman Catholic Church at all, to make All Saints Day and the Eve before to be actually some kind of celebration that was recognizing outstanding people in the church. But on that particular day, All Saints Eve, the 31st of October, 1517, Dr. Martin Luther, professor 
of theology in the, in the university there in Wittenberg, nailed to the church door in Wittenberg Castle, the 95 Thesis, which inaugurated the Protestant Reformation, which God used to both reform and revive both the doctrines of the gospel as well as the church. The main themes that God used, the main themes that were proclaimed by Luther, by Bullinger, by Zwingli, by Bootser, by Calvin, by Ocalampotamus, and others whose names I can't remember nor pronounce, uh, these men all were concentrated upon five fundamental themes that the church had eclipsed, the church had forgotten, the church had compromised, the church had left deficient in its preaching and teaching. The, 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 the themes that are so necessary for the reviving and forming of the church that, first and foremost, the message of salvation is to be found in Scripture and Scripture alone, sola scriptura, and that the way in which we are saved is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus. And then the climax of all of this, everything that wraps it all together, is that the why of salvation, the reason for salvation, the, the grand purpose of salvation is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now this particular fifth Sunday of October, we're focusing upon this fifth sola, the why of salvation. Why did God save broken and sinful human beings? Based upon the scriptures, the answer is God has saved us so that God himself would be glorified. That's what we need to see. That our salvation ultimately is centered in God and who God is and why God does what God does. Now, we return to this passage here in Ephesians chapter 1 because Paul here so clearly establishes the connection between the way of salvation and the why of salvation. The way of salvation being grace through faith in Christ. The why of salvation, though, is particularly highlighted in verse 6 and then in verse 12 and in verse 13. And in verse 6, you have the statement that the purposes of God in salvation, of electing us in Christ, predestinating us in love, adopting us, redeeming us as Christ, is so that God's grace might be praised to the praise of the glorious grace of God, is what verse 6 is saying. And then when we come down to verses 12 and verses 14, we find the phrase to the praise of God's glory, that all of these purpose statements related to salvation and the vocabulary of grace that Paul is presenting all climax with the idea that God has done all of this so that God himself would be glorified. So although we who are saved are the ones who are blessed eternally in our salvation, the ultimate reason for what God has done the ultimate reason for bringing us to Christ, for sealing us with His Holy Spirit, is for the praise of His glory and for the praise of the glory of His grace. Now this is, in fact, today, 
a different focus, a different stress, a different emphasis that we find in so many churches that would purport to be Bible-believing, Christ-trusting churches. It was also very, very different than what was being taught in Luther's day. In his day, the emphasis was not upon what God and God alone has done to graciously save sinful human beings, nor why he's done this with a view to his own glory, but really upon what the sinner must do himself in order to gain a right standing with God. And that was the system of the sacraments. This is what you must do in order to have a right standing with God. The emphasis was upon what we as sinful human beings must do. But Luther, his message was very contrary to that. Luther said that the sinner could not do much at all. In fact, Luther went further. He said the sinner could not do anything at all to put himself in a good standing with God. The only thing that the sinner ever brought to God was his sin, his need. That the only thing that we ever bring to God before God has worked with us in his sovereign grace is our great need for salvation. God himself must save. God must do it all. But then Luther also was so clear in pointing out, why does God do this? What motivated God to, to do all of this for us? First and foremost, his glory. And then secondarily, his love for fallen human beings. Primarily, his concern was for his own name, for his own honor, for his own glory. Now we make the distinction this way. Salvation can be seen as either God-centered or man-centered. Although God blesses us eternally, although in salvation we receive that which is of our greatest good, nevertheless, the ultimate reason for why God saved us is for the praise of his own glory. The stress, the emphasis, the main point of man's salvation is not man, but it's God. Now, that's shocking. It is startling to many supposedly Bible-believing Christians. Many church people profess the Christian faith, but this is an emphasis which they have never heard, never encountered before. Sometimes it's one that they can't even really listen to and abide. When I was a young pastor, uh, I was preaching the beginning of my series in the book of Ephesians. My message on that particular morning was just the very thing that I'm preaching today. God-centered nature of our salvation. There were visitors that morning. They were invited by others in the church. Uh, I followed up with my people in the church to find out how I could follow up with the visitors. Their response was, Randy, don't bother. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, our friends didn't like your message at all. At all. 
uh, to them, it seemed wrong to them to say that God would make salvation ultimately about his own glory. In their minds, salvation should be all about us. The message was too much about God, not nearly enough about people and what people need. Now, it's not surprising when most of the churches in America today would find this emphasis upon God and the God-centeredness of our salvation something foreign to their understanding of the gospel. Our churches today are every bit as man-centered as the Roman Catholic Church was in the 16th century. People want the primary concern to be themselves rather than their primary concern to be for God. In light of this widespread man-centeredness of how people view the Christian faith, it's important to present this theme. Salvation is to the glory of God alone. But for us to understand it with biblical carefulness, biblical accuracy. And so we're going to expose ourselves to three questions that will enable us to get into not only the sense of these things in the text, but other places of Scripture. First, what is the glory of God? Second, why is God's glory his own highest aim and goal? And third, how does God's purpose for his own glory affect us as Christians? Now, I want to tell you, just in case you think about walking out during this message, that the last part of the message is all about the fact that the that God's concern for his own glory is your greatest good. I hope that that's what you see. Because God's greatest concern for you, if it does not coincide with God's greatest concern for himself, is not the God of love that Scripture preaches. But our God is a God of glory and a God of love. And the very truth that God's greatest concern is for His own glory is the greatest truth that you could ever know, the greatest truth you could ever live by, the greatest truth that you could ever embrace. And I want to guarantee you that your life will be small, your life will be little, and your life will ultimately be a failure if you cannot come to embrace and understand this that God created you for His glory and that God has redeemed you for His glory and God has called you to live for His glory and that is the greatest purpose you could ever have. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, what is the glory of God? The word glory has its Old Testament roots where the original word in the Hebrew means heaviness or weightiness. Uh, it's always used, though, with reference to God in, in a figurative sense. In fact, in so many cases, it's a figurative sense of what the word means. 
when it applies to God, then, it refers to his heaviness, his weightiness. Well, what is the heaviness and weightiness of God? Well, it's his majesty, it's his splendor, it's his honor. It's the greatness of who he is in every way. Now, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has sort of reminded us that, that there's really an ultimate inability to fully define the glory of God. But then he goes on in his next sentence to, to try to define it. So he says, the glory of God is his essential and ultimate attribute. It means his greatness, his splendor, his majesty. Now, in the new Word of Truth Confession, which is just being published by a church here in Bakersfield, one of our sister churches, excellent, though it's Baptistic, it's an excellent uh, confession that's reformed in, in just about every way. Here's what they say. The glory of God is his holiness, infinite beauty, and the greatness of his limitless perfection shining out to all of creation. So as far as we can define it, we can say that the glory of God is the sum total of all of his infinite perfections so that the Bible writers call him the God of glory. And even if we can't fully grasp it or fully understand it, the scriptures have given us a number of very definite truths that we need to embrace with respect to the glory of God. First is this. The glory of God is the proof of his own existence. The glory of God is the proof of his own existence in the world. David, as a psalm writer in Psalm 19.1, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. In this place, in a number of other places in the Bible, the claim is given that God has actually preached his existence. God has revealed his existence in the very creation that we find around us. The greatness of God, the greatness of his glory is declared and expressed in the creation that he has made. So Paul makes the same claim in Romans chapter 1. I want to read these six verses here from 18 through 23 because they're very significant. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, that would be a summation of his glory, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. So they are without excuse. Now verse 21 through 23, listen carefully. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul makes it clear that creation preaches and declares God's glory. It proves God's existence, even though fallen human beings will, in fact, resist it and reject it. Now, consider this truth that also comes out of that passage. The glory of God is what fallen human beings react against. 
in the rebellion and hatred of God. It's the glory of God that fallen human beings don't like. This is the further point that Paul's making in this passage. He puts it this way. He says, those who reject the true knowledge of the true God, fallen human beings, what will they do with the glory of God? They will exchange it. They will exchange the glory of the God that is revealed in creation for what? For images they can make that look like human beings or birds or animals, even the creeping things, reptiles. They will exchange it and they will worship and serve those things rather than the God of all glory. Now, think about that. That's what fallen human nature does. It will replace the glory of God that it rejects for something that is far inferior. It's a kind of a cosmic insult against God. This is what we think about your glory, God. We're going to find some human being, or better yet, some some, uh, creature here, or better yet, some slimy reptile, and we're going to make that the God we serve and worship. That's the instinctive, inherent nature of those who hate God. No, we don't want your glory. Yes, we will serve this. In the hatred against God, fallen human nature never wants to give God the glory that God deserves. Now, that leads into the third truth. This is why the world hates Jesus. In John 15, 18, Jesus said that the world would hate him. Now, since Jesus is the revelation of God's glory, those who hate the Father will likewise hate the Son. So, let's remind ourselves that Scripture makes it clear that Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. John 1, verse 14. And the Word, referring to Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Book of Hebrews, the same thing, chapter 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. But then note in another place in Scripture how Paul makes this connection between the glory of God that's revealed in Christ, the rejection of Christ, and the activity of Satan to engineer and cause this to happen. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, where Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and in verse 6, For God said, let light shine out of darkness. God has shown in our own hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, in hating the glory of God, people will hate the glory of Christ. But then also consider this truth about the glory of God. The glory of God was the mission for why Jesus came into the world. John chapter 17, listen to how Jesus prays. It's it's the last great prayer in which Jesus is also instructing his disciples. It's called the high priestly prayer. 
Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you've given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true Son, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Then verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The work the Father gave to the Son to do had the ultimate objective and purpose of glorifying the Father. So, God sends His Son into the world with the highest purpose of bringing the Father glory. The mission of Christ was for the sake of the glory of God. But truthfully, Scripture teaches that everything that God does, God does for His own glory. Which leads then to this question, why is the glory of God His own highest aim and His own goal? Why does God pursue his own glory above everything else? Why is this God's purpose in being God? Well, the fact that we don't understand that instantly, the fact that that might not be self-evident to us, the fact that God's highest aim in all of his eternal existence is all that he does, all that he ever do, his, is his own glory, the lifting up of who he is, uh, with all praise and adoration. The fact that we don't instantly see that, instantly realize that, and instantly embrace it to the fullness of our souls is the index of what sin has done to us. Our brokenness in terms of reflecting the image of God is measured in no greater way than the fact that it's not self-evident to us why God's chief end is God's own glory. So let's see what Scripture says to bear this out, that the purpose of God is the glory of God. Psalm 138, first two verses. David writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks for your name and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God has exalted above everything his name, his word. Because God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Therefore, He rightly exalts Himself above everything else. Isaiah 42, verse 8. God states that He will not share His glory with another. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God establishes Himself as the only object of worship, the unique object of such honor and praise and worship. Again, Isaiah forty-eight eleven. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Again, God's declaring that He and He alone is to receive all of the glory. The New Testament, Colossians one sixteen. God makes 
everything through himself and for himself. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him, all things created through him and for him. So everything that God has ever created, he has created for himself. Now, in this passage in Colossians, it specifically is Christ that's being spoken of as the second person of the Trinity, as God the Son. So if this is true of God the Son, the radiance of God's glory, it is also true of God. It's also true of the triune God, all persons of the Trinity. They're united in being this, one purpose, together, that they do all things for the sake of the eternal glory of God. And the reason is that God and God alone is God. Romans 11, 33-36, which we read during the service. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? No one. God has no peers. God has no equals. No one can counsel God. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. No one can. No matter what we give to God, we remain infinite debtors. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God is unique. God is above everything else. Everything else is for Him. So Paul says, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. God pursues His own glory because He is God. God alone. He alone is worthy of all glory and adoration and praise and honor. He rightly exalts Himself above everything else. This is the reason why God says to every Christian and really to every creature under heaven that we are to do everything for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, even in the smallest things of life. Do you see? <laughs> Eating and drinking are among the necessary, but the small things of life. Even in the smallest things of life, you are to do everything for the glory of God. Just an aside, the implication, there's nothing in your life that is insignificant. There is nothing in your life that has no purpose. And there is nothing in your life that was not ordained and created except for the purpose that by it you would give God glory. Now, even if we don't see these things instantly, the heavenly... The creatures of heaven all do. We, the passage we read in Isaiah 6, the angels were singing, Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. Revelation 5, 4 and 5, 
the, the heavenly creatures. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It is their nature to give God all the glory. Now, what's most vital is to see how this truth bears upon your salvation. And that's where we come back to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. So in verse 6, Paul is telling us why. Why has God purposed our salvation the way that it is? It is so that the praise might be given to the glory of God's grace. Now to be saved in order that praise would come to the grace of God is also to be saved unto the praise of the glory of the God whose grace it is. In other words, what Paul says in that verse, in verse 6, is that if salvation is purposed according to the grace of God, so that God's grace would be praised, that's, that's so that the one who gave that grace would likewise be praised. It's to God's glory. In verses 11 through 14, the same point twice. All that we have received in Christ, according to the counsel of God's eternal will, is so that we who have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of God's glory so that we who have believed the word of truth and have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit would be to the praise of God's glory. Paul is saying to these Ephesian Christians, you can attribute your salvation to the motivation in God to glorify himself. Why has God saved you? He has saved you to the praise of His glory. He has saved you. He has created you. He has made your salvation the highest end for your life to have an even higher end, the glory of God. Final question. How does God's aim to glorify Himself affect you as a Christian? It has a direct bearing on your life in a number of significant ways. First, for each of us, we now understand the greatest purpose for living. Scriptures told us that God's chief end is to glorify Himself forever. Scripture also tells us that our chief end is is to glorify God forever. This means that, that God's own deepest purpose within His divine life, centered in His own glory, is also our purpose for our lives as well. God lives to bring Himself glory. God has saved us to live to bring Him glory. We have the highest purpose for living because our purpose for living is God's purpose for His eternal existence. Do you not see what this does in terms of who you are and why you live? I was reading Richard Dawkins yesterday, the God-hater, the one who's written the book, The God Delusion. 
He hates Christianity with a vengeance. And when he talks about human beings and their purposes, he's talking about what Richard Dawkins can do to establish his own purpose for life. And I'm reading this and I'm going, oh, Dawkins, you are deluded. Your life's purpose is only you. But my life's purpose and your life's purpose is God's life purpose. Do you not see that? Is that not glory? That God has created you so that you will not be bound by your simple temporal life 60, 70, 80 years and die. But God saved you. God redeemed you. God created you for His glory so that every single moment of your life you are living for the glory of God. There is, secondly, a very famous devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. Listen, turn that phrase, read it this way, and see a much deeper biblical truth. God has done His utmost for your highest. For the sake of His own glory, God delivered up His own Son unto death in your place. That is, God did His utmost for your highest, for your highest good that you might have everlasting life and live unto the glory of God. We live as those eternally blessed because God's utmost has been for our highest good. Thirdly, it's a humbling truth to know that it's not primarily about us. It's humbling to know that the story of your life is not ultimately about you. But your dismal failure of a life is rescued and redeemed by the deep truth that your story is made meaningful, even beautiful, even eternally significant because it is part of God's own eternal story to achieve for Himself in Christ and in your redemption by His grace all glory. Fourth, it strengthens your grip on grace. When we live with our hearts rejoicing that God has pursued His own glory, we are exceedingly more trusting, exceedingly more confident that God has saved us by His grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. Because this is what gives God the greatest glory. Lastly, it changes the way we pray about our lives. When you understand that the very reason for your life, the very reason for the story of your life, the very reason for every chapter, every episode, every paragraph that God has written in your life, that the reason for all of this is for the sake of His glory. It changes you, and it changes the way you pray. Listen to this prayer by Ann Waring, the hymn writer. She prays this way, understanding these things. She says, 
Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength, to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side. And here's the point. Content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. The God of all glory fills all the cosmos with his eternal glory. Let us be content to fill our little space so that God might be glorified. Amen. Father, seize our hearts with your glory. Give us no other great desire than to live for your glory. Make us content in life to fill whatever little space you've given to us that we might live to your glory. Because this is why you have loved us and this is why you've saved us. This is why you've given us your son Jesus that we might be saved to live unto your glory. In Christ's name.